Hello, everyone, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm one of your hosts, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined today with my esteemed host, Gabriel Krauser. Howdy, howdy. So, well, another week in lockdown, another week locked in our little boxes, going a bit mad, although some of us uh, have slightly larger boxes than the others, and I don't mean mansions, I mean uh, some of us are on lovely farms where they get to experience the thrill and wonder of nature away from the packed, sardine-like humanity that uh, I'm experiencing. Yeah, no, I'm loving it on the farm. I've had a few, like, kilometer-long walks, plucked some cosmos. Uh, just before this podcast started, we had to delay it a little bit uh, because my nephew and niece were sitting in the studio here with me, and they both got stung by bees at the same time. So there was a wailing and a gnashing of teeth, which I suppose is the flip side of farm life. Uh, dogs getting kicked by horses, children getting stung by bees. Uh, we, also, pretty exciting. we also uh, had a far better version of what that uh, just came from our discussion, which was originally just a sort of social catch-up, but then it turned into effectively a two crickets and a thorn tree discussion that we didn't record because we're not very intelligent. And yep, all of our listeners, that the, what you're about to hear is almost certainly going to be worse than that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, but we'll do our best to make it the least worst. Uh, so I think the first thing we need to talk about is what you implored me to do last episode, which is uh, to watch Tiger King. Well, that weekend I went and I watched Tiger King. I watched the whole thing in one evening. Good man. Make a lot of poor life choices. And all I can say is, so I often don't take in the zeitgeist of the time. I didn't really watch Game of Thrones when it was current. Uh, I usually don't watch the hot new series. I'm, I'm kind of stubborn and grumpy about it for no real good reason. Uh, but I finally partook. And man, was this worth it. It was so amazing. I've never seen... We'll be able to pick over this for a thousand years to try and understand aspects of our, of our society, particularly America in the early 21st century. It is a, a work par excellence. <laughs> yeah. No, it really is a work of art, man. It's amazing. It's, I mean, I think that um, one of the... Uh, kind of patterns through history that I've traced uh, through friends who've written PhDs about this kind of thing is like the novel, the rise and potential fall of the novel because novels used to be the number one entertainment in the world and then they became less hip um, but are still like pretty commonly read on beaches and before bedtime. And TV uh, did this really wonderful thing of kind of beating the novel or at least equaling the novel when it comes to anti-heroes, psychodramas, uh, getting under the skin of people that are doing the kinds of jobs that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives, law and order, uh, hospitals, uh, advertising with Mad Men. Um, so the TV has kind of met the novel at that front, but never in this like realism documentary style. And some of my favorite writers, Rudyard Kapuscinski, Alexandra Svetevich, uh, these Nobel Prize winning writers have done a really good job of that. You know, they just go around and they interview people and they write down what people have to say. And that kind of thing has worked on in film. There've been great film documentaries, Werner Herzog maybe being the greatest film documentary maker there is, but there's never been a great reality TV show. Uh, they've been interesting, they've been exciting, they've been distracting, but this sort of a little bit true... manufactured, actually, I think. Often you kind yeah. of get the feeling that, ah, yeah, no, I'm not really sure that much of this is real. Yeah. Whereas this is like, it's, they are, the characters are so extreme. They live in such an ancient Greco Roman kind of public sphere kind of way. <laughs> it's all on the surface, and the camera is just always there to capture the surface. And it is humanity at its worst and at moments at its best. And I think it, it's, to, I do think that in a hundred years time or 500 years time, if historians want to get a sense of what it was like to be alive in America, um, and if they want to sort of try and get a, an on the ground understanding of how so many people came to vote for Trump and how the Trump-Hillary battle came to be what it was, I think Tiger King is going to be a resource that is going to be useful for centuries. I mean, 
there's I can't think of a better sort of personalities to kind of encapsulate the like madness of the sort of social media self introspective personal brand uh, age than than people like Joe Exotic, uh, who's of course the star of Tiger King. Uh, he is a character who sort of seems like he's is if you were making a joke about what libertarians are like. You would describe mm. a character like Joe Exotic. He's a uh, exotic animal dealer who is also gay in a polygamous marriage, although uh, not legal marriage, but uh, shall we say customary marriage? Although that's yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's of... like a traditional. He's somewhere like a cross between like a, a, a Zulu traditional like warrior and a New Age hedonist, druggy hedonist. On meth and a cowboy, and, and a cowboy, and a social media star, and Taylor Swift or whatever, you know. Yeah, uh, he's he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, and yet he managed to build a relatively successful business and a brand, a personal brand, which came really from the fact that he's completely and utterly insane. Yeah, and you can't like a train wreck, as they often say in the show. You just can't help watching it. Um, so I suppose one of the things we are going to have to give you some spoiler alerts here. We, we, we're going to discuss the show having seen it. In its entirety, um, yeah. It's, it's not that long, so please do yeah. go and watch it. Uh, yeah. It's what? If you have sort of Netflix or anything, it's, uh, it's going to be like, what, five hours, six hours, somewhere around there, in link to watch yeah. all seven episodes. And I'm assuming um, everyone's already seen it. And, and one of the things about it is that the, the, the overall storyline is given away from the very first episode. So yeah. what are we uh, going to be saying? This is, you, you definitely know that he ends up in jail. Yeah. That's not a spoiler. Um, but anyway, from this point on, let's just say full spoilers. So the, the question that the show leaves you with is, the first question the show leaves you with is, is Joe Exotic guilty of murder for hire? So you try to hire, the, the, the claim is he tried to hire someone to kill his arch nemesis through life, a woman named Carolyn Baskin, and uh, never did a sweeter being walk the earth. <laughs> um, so, so Carol Baskin is this like she's she's almost actually the perfect representation of that sort of uh, holier than thou uh, activist um, who is also a complete hypocrite. She's like when people when people say describe the sort of a social justice warrior, uh, she yeah. is the kind of person that people think of really not she is the quintessence yeah she is the quintessence she is she is uh hypocrisy and and sort of self-importance wrapped together in a tight ball and she works it really well she's made an enormous business success out of it yeah um so she's not killed but uh there is but joe exotic has been found guilty of murder for hire uh now, my superficial judgment is that this is a miscarriage of judge justice. Um, and the reason is kind of, I suppose there are a lot of reasons for it. One of them is that um, the people who, the man that he supposedly hired to do the assassination is not someone that he likes, is someone that he knows hates him. Uh, this guy, Alan, I think is his name, hates Joe. Joe really hates Alan. They, he know, they know not to trust each other. So it'd be very strange to hire someone to go and do this if you have very low trust for them. Also, he pays him very little money, $3,000. Which is uh, a pretty good rate for a murder, if you think about it. Yeah, and, it's not and, the kind of, you know, if you want it to be like, I'm going to pay you half now and then more later, like you'd, you'd want the more later to be enough to make up for the lack of trust, yeah. uh, which they're... Which is clearly and, there. And of course, the murder doesn't happen, even though there's nothing necessarily to stop it, right? They, they have, a, they have an, a, there's allegedly a plan. There's allegedly, um, the, all the details have been worked out. The guy goes down to Florida, right to the murder place, and then he spends all the money in a strip club. Excepting, we don't know whether to trust this guy because he, there are voice, you know, he has said in multiple taped conversations, uh, both uh, phone calls that were recorded and on camera that he never went to Florida, excepting that in trial, he said he did go to Florida. 
Um, yeah. And I'm not sure whether he perjured himself or not. Joe Exotic's claim is that he did perjure himself. I'm not sure how that is addressed. And that's going to get to my second point. But the main point is there's two claims. It, it's, it's common cause that Joe Exotic did pay this guy $3,000. Joe Exotic's line is that he raised this money at a Thanksgiving dinner that he made sort of a year after his husband killed himself either by accident or deliberately. It was kind of a cathartic uh, social coming together moment. And, uh, you know, there was this fundraiser dinner and that that cash, he then asked his boss, who was also the boss of this guy, Alan, uh, the boss's name is Jeff Lowe and he's a shady character, a felon, uh, someone who'd already stolen the zoo effectively from Joe. Uh, he said, you know, can I pay this guy this money to tell him to like go and have a holiday and come back and treat me like the boss here because we're having a very bad work relationship. And yeah. his story is that the boss says yes. So he pays this guy basically to go and have a vacation because they earn very, very little. They earn like a few yeah, hundred they, grand they, a week. They're fed, they're fed off of uh, an expired meat truck from Walmart. Yeah. The and they just live zoo. They just live on the job. So they've got very low costs, but they get very no money. So the yeah. thought is, you know, this three thousand dollars, he can finally go and have have a blast, and then come back with his head screwed on right. The counterclaim, uh, the argument made from the other side, is that no, this three thousand dollars was very clearly paid for him to go to Florida to kill the woman, and then he he went, but he didn't actually kill the woman. Okay, so those are the two stories. From what evidence is presented in the show, it seems like both stories are plausible, and if both stories are plausible. Even if one is more likely than the other, then there's reasonable doubt. And on the basis of reasonable doubt being the burden of proof that you have to transcend in order to find someone guilty of this kind of felonious charge, uh, exotic should have been acquitted. Now, what I want to add to this is I have unusual experience in this kind of thing. I wrote about the Kalini case, and so I know what it really takes to uh, make a serious and deep judgment that there's been a miscarriage of justice in a trial. And what it took for me to do that was literally reading 2,000 pages, 1,000 pages of court transcripts, 1,000 additional pages of annexures, not just reading it once, reading a lot of those yeah, sections over is, and over again, really, weeks of discussion. This, this is a really yeah. good point, right? Court cases are always really complicated or almost always really complicated. And you know, there's a tendency of people who have watched nothing except sort of uh, vague news coverage for 15 minutes in total uh, to make yeah. pronouncements on a thing and say, oh, how could the jury be so stupid to decide X, Y, Z, or how could the judge be so stupid? Well, uh, there's usually actually a pretty good reason. Yeah. So I don't know what that good reason is. So that's why I say I've, I've, I've watched the show and I'm like, dude, this guy shouldn't be in jail. But I don't take that. That opinion is very shallow. It's not a deep opinion. It's not a very well-informed opinion. It's just based on one show where everything is passed through one director's eyes, one editor's decisions about what goes in and what doesn't go in. So um, so at this stage, I kind of hope that, and, and trust, I've got no doubt that there's so much attention that's been given to this thing that there'll be lots of American journalists and jurists and whatever who go ahead and and unearth and, and the relevant details and that that system should take its course. And if, uh, you know, if I've overlooked, if the show has, um, kind of done a disservice to its viewer by not including relevant details that are incriminating against Joe Exotic, then I hope they come forward. I mean, I'm sure they'll come forward. Yeah, um, and uh, this is a point we discussed earlier, uh, which is what's interesting about this documentary is it is really well-made, well-edited, well-paced. Um, and it, it crafts the whole thing together in such a way as the story has twists and turns that you often don't expect. So, for example... It has an interview with a particular character in the first episode. And then in the second episode, it reveals a piece of information about her, which is that she's lost one of her arms. Now, yeah. they sh they cut the shot in such a way that so in the first episode, you don't see that her arm is missing. And they reveal it suddenly in the second episode, just after this attack. And then you realize she's the same person who, who, who got attacked by the, the wild animal. Um, yeah. Now, that does make it excellent watching, but... For me, at least, it leaves a little bit of suspicion in my mind because I know that if they're so, if they're such skilled filmmakers, which is what yeah. they are clearly for this thing, uh, how much can we trust them to really get a good idea of what's going on in this show? Yeah, but I so I think that this is one of the great virtues of the show is that all of its main characters, Joe Exotic, Carolyn Baskin, 
her late husband, um, his main his main uh, zoo workers, his main commercial allies, uh, Jeff Lowe, Doc Atley, like every single one of those Doc characters. Antle. Doc Antle, your impression changes of that character. You come in with a kind of introduction that either makes you think this is a villain and then something heroic is displayed or you kind of are introduced thinking this is a hero and then something villainous is displayed. And for the central characters, you go through multiple waves of up and down, up and down. And I think what that, that produces is this kind of uh, drama and this, uh, but I think it also produces this kind of suspicion that Nick's talking to you of like, you know, how, there's this ironic distance. Like how much can I actually trust anything that I'm seeing? Is this final moment, is this the final judgment or is, or am I just at a, at a trough or a peak in a wave which if I, if I manage to only see through past the next corner, I would realize is, is a misleading impression or is a standout yeah. moment that doesn't really tell you the full story. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think that's great very about well it. Put. I hope a lot of people, I, are, yeah. I, I do want to say something, which is that uh, even though it kind of tries to give you a little bit of a good impression of Carol Baskin to begin with before it sort of reveals reasons why you might think she's not such a good person, um, I despised her from the beginning mostly because she is allied to people for the ethical treatment of animals, Peter. And I yeah. think Peter is bordering in some cases on a terrorist organization. Uh, yeah. I, I think that there are some reasons to actually suspect that legitimate terrorist attacks have at least a loose yeah. affiliation to the world of Peter. Um, but yeah. also I think that they are uh, a malignant force in, in the world of conservation and animal rights, actually. Uh, so when, yeah. when I saw that she was allied to them, I was very turned off. No, I did. And I think the animal rights movement, it's, it's uh, one of the interesting things we're shooting progress. One of the interesting things is that um, we have this strange thing about the animal rights movement where, and this is another thing that the show does so well, is looking at animals, super compelling. It's super rewarding when they're cute little cubs and they're being tickled when they're being used in a las vegas hotel room to lure a beautiful uh let's say lush woman um uh, they've got a very sexy factor they've got a very cute factor they've also got a terrifying factor at very key moments in the story when a human drama has just been unfolded for example the allegation that Catherine baskin killed her late husband like then you cut to a scene where you just see tiger's claws kind of flexing uh, out of their paws and and you hear that deep grunt and you see the look in it that like hungry look in a tiger's eye and you see the ways in which we are all very animal and those animal instincts of lust of cuddle of murder of devouring your enemy are, are, are very neatly played out by these these these, these uh, what you call call props or what you could call ultimately the real heroes of the show um, the animals uh, that we kind of preserve for our own aesthetic pleasure. Now, the strange thing about the animal rights movement is that it usually depends just on this kind of Rousseauian story of animals in nature living That's in the, the best perfect, possible the way. Perfect embodiment, uh, the perfect embodiment of the noble savage. Exactly. And one of the things that the show pushes up against is like a lot of people who say, you know, these tigers and lions are living kind of better lives than living in the wild, they get more cuddle time, they get more stable food supply. Like, yes, they don't get to run around as much, but they, you know, what you lose on the swings, you, you gain on the merry-go-round. And that's a great sort of civilizational drama, the sort of drama between uh, the vision of living on a farm as I'm now being the idyll. And even this farm is far from it because we've got bricks and mortar and we've got running water and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if we, if we were to peel all of that back, is that the best way to live? Or is it better to live in a city where you're kind of cooped up and where there are all kinds of social problems, but where ultimately, by many measures, your standard of life is higher? Your life expectancy is higher. I mean, one of the things is tigers in the wild just don't get too fat. Like, no, no they don't. <laughs> uh, there's a reason a why they... There's a reason why when they talk about the lifespans of animals, they often say, uh, in captivity can live up to, uh, because in the wild, most things don't make it that old. Yeah, turtles, like the longest living mammals, like some turtle that lived to like 400, 300 or whatever it is, that doesn't happen in the wild because um, they'd get munched by like a series of ligavons or something. So, <laughs> so, so the animal rights movement has got this. 
So the animal rights movement, my claim is that the animal rights movement from like a civilization, from this sort of sociological, social political point of view, kind of relies on this Rousseauian dream of utopian nature, utopian state of nature. And in terms of the footage, it just relies on the cute factor of when you zoom in on a, an animal not doing something particularly grisly, it's like super cute. And this really peels that back and gives a multifaceted and complex look at what those animal lives are like. And that in turn, I think, goes a long way to debunking the kind of single uh, leg of the stool that the animal rights movement rests itself upon. And it makes you think that like a lot of capitalism, a lot of like zookeeping, a lot of pet keeping, you know, these might be ways of also preserving uh, species diversity uh, that are rewarding to both humans and, and the animals. Uh, and But I've just got to say one like detailed point on that where I do think Peter's kind of evil. So Carolyn Baskin, like she, you see her going to Washington to Congress to lobby for, for even more stringent laws to ban yeah. uh, uh, further trade so, and dissemination breeding. So I think partly with her involvement, uh, they, they did get a, a piece of legislation uh, passed which uh, cancels a lot of the commercial activity around exotic animals like tigers. Not all of it was made illegal, but quite a lot of it is, I, uh, I believe. And the U.S. has definitely uh, moved a little bit more in that direction over recent years. And one of the problems, one of the things that grates me about that is is that like the one of the some of the charges that Joe Exotic is behind bars for, and here it seems incontrovertible that he did it because he admits doing it, is killing tigers. He killed five tigers. Um, yeah. In his zoo, uh, he shot them. He says they were. He shot them. He says they were weak. They were sick. They were old. They were injured, and so he euthanized them. Um, and this is against the law. You're not allowed to kill these animals. Now I can't understand why. It, why I don't, I see no moral argument against killing tigers. And I see no legal basis for outlawing the killing of tigers. I'm here on a farm with four dogs and we've had one dog run over by a car and we've managed to revive her and she's fine actually. Um, but if she had broken her back, I would expect that dog to be euthanized post haste. And if, and if the best way to do that is to do it on the farm with a bullet through the head, that would be the humane and correct and proper thing to do. Uh, you know, anyone who's watched Million Dollar Baby so with Clint Eastwood and Hilary Swank knows that scene where he's like, you know, one of the toughest but morally greatest things I've done in my life is my dog broke his back and I took him to the backyard and I loved that dog with all of my heart. And that's why I killed it because I didn't want it to suffer anymore and there was no way that it was going to be healed. Killing horses, killing like sheep animals, uh, cows, chickens. We kill animals all of the time. I don't see why tigers are animals that we shouldn't yeah, there's kill. Yeah, there's definitely a charismatic megafauna thing going on here, that they're both cute while cubs and sort of majestic while adults and good-looking. And, and that's clearly what's driven a lot of this kind of legislation and the emotions around this. It's that, you know, there are sort of slugs and snails out there that also are endangered, <laughs> but they're not exciting, and so no one, no one cares. Um, and yeah. it, I, I agree with you. It is completely sort of illogical why th this is illegal. Uh, and I, I, it is part of the carriage of misjustice against Joe Exotic is that, you know, he gets um, – I like carriage of misjustice, Nick. Ma marriage ma – sorry. It's, it's been a long lockdown. <laughs> carriage of misjustice? No, that's great. Stick to it. <laughs> okay, fine. Miscarriage of justice. Sorry, there we go. Um, <laughs> so Joe Exotic – he, he, in the end, he gets taken down for this murder for hire plot, and he gets all these animal rights things that sort of attached, these animal rights violations things attached to it. Um, and at one point, he gets threatened with, he says, 79 years in prison. Now, he ends up getting sentenced to 22, which is still actually an extremely uh, large amount of jail time. Uh, and they're the, especially the given, sorry, can I just interlude? Especially given, as you pointed out in our earlier conversation, like that there's a guy in the show that buys tigers from Joe Exotic who was a drug dealer who did kill someone yes. and who got less jail time. Yes, who has gotten less jail time uh, because he was, let, he was let out earlier, like for sort of good behavior and that kind of thing. So that's, that, that's completely insane. But also the alleged hitman in this murder for hire case uh, is also completely without any sanction at all. He didn't have to plead down a charge. He didn't, you know, get a, a, a sort of a warning or something. No, he got no jail time, was never taken to trial. Yeah. Um, and so one of the it things that the of, show does... Yeah. 
does also shine a light on is this kind of this problem that a lot of libertarians, I think, have correct in the U.S. So the the U.S. for some good reasons and some not very good reasons uh, has created a very tough criminal justice system, right? Especially after the big crime wave of the 70s and 80s. And as a result, federal prosecutors in particular outside of the states have an enormous amount of power. And in this case, it was a federal prosecution. The FBI was involved. And the uh, the feds have an enormous amount of uh, leverage that they can wield over people to force them into taking plea deals and that kind of thing, which is why I think something like 98% of all uh, court cases in the US, uh, at least federal court cases, I'm not sure about normal criminal ones, um, end up being uh, a guilty plea. Um, yeah. Just because... You know, if you go to trial, even if you've got a relatively good chance of getting off, if something goes wrong, you can go away for the rest of your life, even for a relatively minor crime. And in this yeah. case, of course, Joe Exotic did not plead, plead guilty. He he fought the charge himself. He took the witness stand himself. Um, and that's surely one of the reasons why the legal system uh, smashed him so badly. Whereas the drug dealer, it seems, um, yeah. took a guilty plea. Took the, took the prudent route. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems, it seems, I've got to say, it's, it reminds me of, um, I think in Islamic law and Christian law, like in a lot of, in the bad old days, uh, adultery charges often went like this guy sleeps with women who's not his wife, woman is found guilty of adultery, guy uh, just goes back to life as usual, right? There's this really weird thing where there's, some crimes where there have to be two people, it really does take two to tango, but only one of them goes to jail or only one of them gets punished. And that's when you know you've got a very strange system. And when there's a murder for hire, guilty finding, but the, but, but the actual hitman is uh, not even forced to make a plea, that's pretty strange. It also kind of reminds me of when Jacob Zuma's accountant uh, was found guilty of uh, doing a corrupt deal as Jacob Zuma's accountant. On but Jacob Zuma Jacob was Zuma. innocent. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, no, it's that, like that's, you just can't have that. Not, it's not how logic works, you know. Here's, here's a tangent we should explore at some point, which is uh, medieval divorce law and uh, law around sex and marriage and that kind of stuff. It's actually really fascinating. Um, and I'd recommend that anyone who's interested in that sort of thing goes and looks up uh, – and this is relating to your in the bad old days things, um, the selling of wives that used to happen in England. And actually, it turns out that it was largely a method of divorce. So it was never recognized as truly legal. It was always sort of held as a customary law uh, that, that, that yeah. the authorities repeatedly attempted to stamp out. Um, but it was a way of people getting divorced. You would go and sell your wife to someone else. Uh, but actually, it was almost always your wife has cheated on you with you or you've been separated for a while and you just want to kind of make them the marriage dissolve yeah. you would go and say uh, so actually i'm selling him to i'm selling my wife to the new lover or something like that it, 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 it sounds, was a very bizarre practice but we'll we'll go on to that another time <laughs> we'll get there okay first covid huh yeah so uh, let's start with let's start with the who um, world health organization now I have been salivating at the opportunity to, because there are two things in the world I hate uh, with a burning passion. One is the Communist Party of China, uh, which, although it's probably one of the world's better communist parties, which is not saying much, <laughs> I do think that it is a, an evil, malicious force upon the world. And the other thing I really hate is the UN, which is, I think, a useless, uh, useless organization that gets very little done and has an enormous amount of credit given to it uh for 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 you know various things and and i really i really despise the un to its core the who seems to be where these two things meet together because there's increasing evidence that that the who has effectively become a pawn of china particularly its leader uh, i can't remember his name but he's a guy from uh, he's an ethiopian politician uh they were accepting China's responses and, and sort of not very good investigations at the beginning of this outbreak. Uh, they, they uh, as late as January 14th, which is at least a month after human-to-human -human transmission was very credibly confirmed in local Chinese hospitals, the WHO was repeating the top-line uh, claim made by China that there were no human-to-human -human transmissions of 
of COVID. Yeah. Uh, they also opposed travel bans. They said uh, travel bans would be counterproductive, whereas I think the evidence is showing that travel bans are actually the most effective thing you could possibly do to control the spread of COVID. Uh, much more effective yeah. than lockdowns, much more effective than basically anything. Uh, and and uh, the other thing that WHO has been doing is really going after Taiwan. Now, of course, China does not like Taiwan because it claims that it is that Taiwan is part of China, whereas it very obviously isn't. Um, and uh, there was first a very embarrassing interview. I don't know if we've talked about it on the last episode where one of the senior WHO officials uh, is asked questions about how, how Taiwan is responding to the pandemic. He then pretends to not hear the question, then says, no, we just need to move on to another question. Then he pretends to lose the call. Then he says, so sorry, the interview's over. Uh, I've already talked about China. When, when it is to talk about shocking. I think we did it talk about it. It is the most schoolboy, ridiculous, humiliating. That guy should be fired and made like a character in, in The Simpsons. Uh, he is actually, I think, one of their top uh, officials. I think he's in the top three of the organization. So that's what's even yeah. more shocking about it. Uh, so China has tried to get Taiwan sort of excluded from any world forum on uh, the WHO saying that Taiwan is represented by the People's Republic of China and therefore doesn't get to have a seat in anything. Uh, this despite the yeah. fact that Taiwan has had some of the best results in controlling COVID. So Taiwan instituted um, some travel restrictions on Wuhan very early on, kind of at the beginning of the year, basically. And it pretty much banned almost all entry to the island on March 18th, which was you know, very early in the cycle. And as a result, Taiwan, which has, you know, a pretty good testing capacity, uh, as well as, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a free press, so it can be, you know, interrogated, uh, has only 385 confirmed cases and six deaths as of this moment that we're recording this. So it has done extremely well in controlling COVID. And yeah. it's been completely pushed out by the WHO. And it's getting even worse now because the leadership of the WHO has decided that the most important thing to hold press conferences on right now is the racist and uh, attacks and death threats that are allegedly coming from Taiwan towards the head of the World Health Organization. Which, to me, that has encapsulated the total moral failure of the WHO. It is an organization that has, I think, as far as I'm concerned, no credibility. And after this pandemic is over, it needs to be completely redesigned or maybe even replaced with something yeah. different. So I want to say that Nicholas and I differ both on the Chinese Communist Party and on the UN. I'm much more sympathetic to both. I mean, I think the UN is potentially great. And I think the Chinese Communist Party is communist yeah, in name only. The word potentially there is doing a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. But... But I think, you know, coming so coming from maybe a different starting position, I completely share his judgment of of what's going on right now. The, the WHO is, you know, I, th I think in years to come, if 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 even in just in, in months to come, if if it turns out that the biggest single mistake that was made was slow reaction to the virus, because for the first month we thought there was no human to human tr transmission, and then a slow, uh, a delayed kind of restriction on travel from China, then the, 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 the foremost guilty parties for both of those things are going to be the WHO and the Chinese Communist Party. And um, yeah, I, I suppose in this, in this very blue, red, left, right kind of world where, where those two teams seem to be like everything, a lot of people on Team Blue, a lot of people on the left are going to find themselves in a very tricky situation. And like some of the, some of the local scientists, science enthusiasts that I've been uh, communicating a lot about with COVID have said things like this, you know, China, you can't trust the Chinese data on the coronavirus. They're probably not reporting accurately because they don't trust the communist party. At the same time, they say, you've got to trust everything the WHO says, but the WHO says you've got to trust the Chinese data because they've got they spot on yeah, and are perfect that's and, this, very, and the that's same canadian point. deputy director uh you know said like one day we will have to thank the people of wuhan for the great gift that they've given to the world i mean he literally said that so you can't believe both that the who is great and that china is lying because the who is saying china's not lying 
So I think that uh, people are going to have to just kind of slow themselves down a little bit on the usual team uh, team championing kind of things, uh, either being uh, and 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 kind of just look at this particularly singular uh, world changing event and 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 see that even if there are parties that they generally quite like uh, that have that have done bad things, then you know. Part of being a good teammate, I suppose, is criticizing your bloody captain when he screws up. Exactly. I mean, for the UN to work, uh, it needs to be seen as a genuinely nonpartisan entity. And when it has its arms like the WHO very clearly taking sides in international conflicts uh, and siding with China on a sort of to an embarrassingly obvious degree, uh, it, it really needs to change for the UN to have any sort of standing. Yeah. Um, you know, so here's the, a, th a thing I'm kind of fond of trolling about on social media is this, you know, whenever people, particularly Chinese government officials, post, you know, slavish praise of, of the Chinese Communist Party's response and how China's dealt with the virus um, is to say, uh, China lied, people died, right? Which is now a, a sort of hashtag that's going around on social media mm -hmm. to, to kind of refer to this fact that the Chinese government, at least on a local level, definitely did cover up. Uh, some of the aspects of the the of COVID when it was you know first around. In early days. Um, so on that question, I mean, I don't actually though believe that necessarily uh, China's response prevent uh, uh, caused the global pandemic. I think that it definitely uh, it's going to probably in the later analysis, although obviously we'll see, show that it made it much worse. I'm not sure whether they could have definitely controlled it. It is a tricky disease. It is, uh, you know, um, much easier to spread than even the normal flu, which is something that we we struggle to control. So, you know, whether it would have gotten out of China or not is an open question. But I think that it's irrefutable uh, that. China's feet dragging and messing about with data and all that sort of thing has made everything about this worse. Um, yeah. And I think there was, yeah. there's actually been a study done to this effect, which says something like the number of cases would be 20 times lower in their estimation uh, if, if um, China had been upfront with its data. So, and that's very worrying. And we are going to have to look more into that. I wanted, I want to talk a little bit about why about the nature of COVID. So Nicholas is right to say that it, it in some ways spreads more easily than the flu. And one of the things that Nick talked about in an earlier episode is that this has to do with the fact partly that it's in the family of viruses that are cold, usually called cold viruses rather than flu viruses, basically for the reason that they live more in the upper respiratory system, the sinuses, the throat, the mouth, and less deep in the lungs. Uh, and where they're usually not very dangerous where true influenza viruses go. And so because they don't get deep into the lungs, they usually called these, these groups of viruses are not uh, usually as bad, but they do spread really easily. And one of the things is that something, that virus can get into your throat and it can be, you know, the virus can't re replicate without your body. Uh, it can be replicating in your throat without making you particularly sick. And that's how they spread so easily is that there's this, long delay between you contracting the thing and it using you as a host to replicate itself and you actually realizing that you're busy spreading it around. So there's definitely this two-tier aspect to COVID, which is that it gets into your throat, it's replicating there, it spreads around while that's happening and you're asymptomatic, but then it also can get deep into the lungs, peel back the outer tissue, get into the alveoli um, and do serious damage. Now, there is this open question uh, and I and what I want to say here is that this is an open question. Uh, th that's the, my kind of take on it about whether there is a third level to the COVID virus, whether there's a basement level that it reaches, where and where that's doing a lot of the work. Now, this story I first came across through Nick through a piece written in uh, the Medium, which has subsequently been deleted. But I'm not going to talk about that piece. I'm going to talk about the research where I know the authors. Uh, and uh, and they're in medical journals. So there are two Chinese authors uh, who did uh, an analysis um, for uh, for a, a Chinese peer-reviewed journal, Chairman, Chairman Mix, I can't say the name of the thing, uh, but I'll post a link if we can. Um, and basically what they did is they uh, looked at the structure of the virus, they looked at the structure 
of your hemoglobin, the red, the, the, the red blood cells that carry oxygen around, and they try to figure out whether this virus has the right shape and nature to basically rip out the iron in your hemoglobin, uh, eat the heme, heme and globin together. Heme is a kind of protein and we have four kinds of hemes and then there's the globin which kind of wraps it. Whether they can rip out some of the hemes, rip out some of the iron and that that makes your, your the little guys that you need to carry around oxygen in your blood, basically they can't carry around oxygen in your blood. And one way to think about this is carbon monoxide poisoning. When you get carbon monoxide poisoning, what happens is that the little guys in your blood carrying around oxygen, when they come around the lungs and they're ready to pick up their new deliveries because they've offloaded the previous oxygen, if there's like uh, 50 oxygens on the platform and 20 carbon monoxides, they'll go for the carbon monoxides first. They get like a uh, premier class, that thing, you know, in the airport, you, they, you know, they get to go to the front of the queue. And then the hemoglobins get... Uh, uh, carry those around and when they go to the organs to try and offload it the organs can't do anything with it and and that's how you die your heart can't do anything with the carbon monoxide so the thought is that much like in that case the virus is reducing your your body's ability to pick up the oxygen at the platform now there are a couple of reasons to so so what these what this uh, uh, this medical journal shows is through uh, what is called in silico testing, which means just using computers, using computer analyses of the protein strands, of the RNA strands, of the of the envelope pattern, of all of the kinds of very well documented uh, facets of both hemoglobin and of the virus. Uh, it looks, they say, it looks like the virus can do this. Now, there's a counter argument which has been made by a Pittsburgh uh, PhD guy who's just spent the last seven years. Um, uh, working on a dissertation about hemoglobin, and he says that he doesn't think the virus, he thinks the virus is too big to displace the iron. He thinks that um, the, this journal article shouldn't be latched onto by amateurs. Uh, it does start out with saying that this is to be discussed by other academics, and he says that you shouldn't really be taking this seriously until there's in vitro, until you move from in silico, which is computer testing, to in vitro testing, which is test tube testing, and then finally, in if possible, in vivo testing, which is in vivo testing, which is in the life of a living organism. So I think that those cautions are well taken. I think um, we, we, we really must be cautious of jumping too far ahead of ourselves. Um, and uh, w one of the great South Africans, the, probably the most South famous South African ex-doctor, Tim Noakes, has come out on Twitter very strongly in favor of this theory that COVID attacks the blood. It makes the blood incapable of picking up the oxygen. And that is what's draining people out. Um, and, so uh, and, and we've got other local doctors who say this too. But I, let, me, let me just finish this thought. So it's an open question. The data is not very good. It is suggestive. Why does it matter? It matters for a very practical reason. And the practical reason is that there is anecdotal evidence, there is anecdotal evidence that um, medicines that stop other pathogens from doing the same thing to your hemoglobin, to your blood, are working on COVID. That's one thing. And the, and the most obvious one is uh, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine various kinds of quinine derivatives, malaria drugs. Malaria gets into your blood, it gobbles the bloods, uh, extra hemes, they're not able to reproduce in the right way, they're not able to carry oxygen. And so the thought is, it would make sense. So far, no one's, you know, people have been saying, we think this works, maybe it doesn't work, it's very hard to do trials because you can't do double blind trials easily in the circumstance because a double blind trial means we're going to give some guys not the right medicine and they might just die and that kind of sucks not a lot of people want to sign up for that some of the trials are discontinued for that reason but this would kind of explain the question mark about why would it work and the other thing that it would explain which is a big story across world media is a doctor in new york city called uh, called kyle uh no cameron kyle siddle who works in an icu in Brooklyn and has subsequently moved back to emergency care uh, because he says that he's watched ventilators get plugged into people and their blood their oxygen saturation in their blood just keeps going down. And that wouldn't happen if this was a regular uh, 
uh, if this caused ARDS, acute respiratory disease syndrome, if there's a normal pneumonia, that wouldn't be happening. And so he's advocating for low pressure, high oxygen ventilation. And for South Africa, this is extremely important because there's an unnoticed detail in President Ramaphosa's address to the nation on Thursday, just before Easter, where he said, we are soliciting non-intrusive ventilators. Now, non-intrusive ventilators are the kinds of ventilators that if you have emphysema, asthma, uh, you might have it at your bed stand if you've had lung cancer, where it basically just takes the oxygen in the air, it gets more concentrated oxygen, and you just breathe it in through a mask. And there can be slightly increased um, pressure, but it's mainly about more oxygen. And that's very different to ordinary ventilator usage where you are on an operating table, and so your lungs, your diaphragm is not doing the usual movements, your lungs are not doing the work. And so you need pressure. You need an external billows, pressure valve to open up the chest, to depress the chest, to open up the chest and depress the chest. Now, the problem with that is that is known to be a cause of, you know, what is sometimes uh, called a glass lung. You know, it that itself does damage to the aeoli. That itself does damage to the lungs if you don't ha if you have a person on it for days. And usually for surgery, it's fine because you're only on for 12 hours at most. But if you're keeping people on ventilators for days, hoping that their immune system is finally going to catch up, which is that ventilator that is not necessarily doing the right job. So this is why it's an open question: Is this first an upper respiratory disease, then a lung disease, and then also a blood disease, which would mean you need to look more at blood transfusions, you need to look more at getting hemoglobins into people, and you need to look more at high oxygen, low pressure, or is the blood thing just a red herring and is it just an upper respiratory and lower respiratory disease? And those, in which case the, the hydrochloroquine is probably a dead end and we need, we need to keep looking elsewhere. These are two different treatments based on two different hypotheses about this, how this disease works. And the argument, I have spoken to several South African doctors who've said, stay away from this because you're not an expert and, and, and you need to leave time for the peer-reviewed journals to figure it out. And I will say, looking at Gilead, which uh, produces hydrochloxy, uh, produces the chloroquine drug uh, and is uh, internationally very well respected, uh, you know, uh, uh, organization for testing medicines, they have on their website a nice array of the ongoing trials. They've done one trial with 53 um, patients who were given the chloroquine treatment and generally very, very positive results. Uh, something like two thirds of people uh, uh, were cured. Uh, but there was a double blind placebo controlled treatment in China that was discontinued due to low enrollment. I've already suggested why they might be low enrollment when you think you're gonna die and the doctor says, well, I can give you maybe a placebo, maybe the real thing. Maybe you say, maybe just save my life. Um, but there are five ongoing uh, case studies None of them are double blind because it's a very hard time to do that. Uh, but one involves 600 patients, one involves 400 patients, they both being married, managed by Gilead. One is being done by NIAID, which is double blind and placebo controlled. And they've got 800 people plus who have signed up. And one is under the World Health Organization and under China and under INSERN. And that's got 10,000 people. And that's basically just trying to collate data about dosage, about demographics, uh, across the world. So people are getting the treatments and they're kind of going to gather that data and try and uh, data mine it for, 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 for the best learning. This is very important. And I don't think that we can just leave it up to the doctors themselves to ask these questions. I think the journalists have to play their role because of the example of China. The thing that screwed China up amongst other things was the lack of a free press, was the lack of valves for people to easily reach out to, to apply pressure, to keep minds open to maybe this isn't what we thought it was. Okay, your boss initially said this can't be human to human transmissible. Now you are finding evidence that it is human to human transmissible, but you're in a closed system and you're not allowed to, uh, you can only appeal to your boss and he's got a vested interest in ignoring you and tamping you down. That proved already not to work. We need the media and we need ordinary citizens around yeah, the world to keep exactly. an open mind. Don't get carried away, but just keep an open mind. And, uh, you know, even 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 doctors can't sort of be at the font of all, you know, not all doctors are plugged into some great machine that feeds them all the latest medical journals and research and that kind of thing. These things have to also spread 
uh, in the medical community as well. And if the government is very aggressively policing what can and cannot be said um, about such things, I mean, then then we really are going to have a real uh, strangling of new ideas, of new information. Um, and this is crucial because I, I believe one of the things that does seem to be happening with COVID is people are on ventilators for very long periods of time. Um, and if we actually do work out what the mechanism of the disease is very exactly, uh, it could be this, maybe it's something else, uh, then that means that our chances to treat it long before we get a vaccine might uh, might will be greatly improved. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about this was, you know, it worries me when a character like Tim Noakes gets into this. So now I have no idea whether Tim Noakes, you know, I know he got in trouble with the, the uh, health authorities here. I have no idea the merits of that case. I didn't follow it. I don't know how great his medical advice is in his book or not. Uh, I don't know whether he's a genius or a charlatan. But I worry that when he becomes involved, regardless of whether he's right or not, it's going to cause people, even doctors and the medical professionals, to sort of clamp down in a group and say, oh, no, you see, this this heretic is saying the wrong thing. It must uh, This heretic is saying this thing. It must be false. Uh, and that, yeah. that will strangle information. So it would probably be better to me if a polarizing figure like him, it's, it's like uh, the same thing that's happened with Donald Trump and, and chloroquine, right? So Donald Trump has gone way over his skis and talking about how you know, chloroquine is this magic drug and you should take it prophylactically and it's fantastic. Um, now, maybe he is going to turn out to be right. Yeah, a game changer, right? Maybe it's going to turn out that he was right. Um, but the fact that he said it then caused a bunch of states to ban its 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 giving out for a while. Um, it caused all sorts of people to freak out and search for reasons as to why this was in fact wrong. And in fact, uh, a large amount of the American media reported a story of a couple that drank drain cleaner or fish tank cleaner rather uh, to try and get the uh, what is it chloroquine phosphate or something in it. They thought it was hydroxychloroquine the drug uh, to cure yeah. it, to protect them against uh now that's that's ridiculous of course because you know that couple they, they didn't even get the right chemical <laughs> um, yeah that they drank uh but this sort of stupid tribal hysterical frenzy uh reaction happens when these very polarizing figures wade into a debate like this yeah um, okay but so here's my counter argument to that i think yeah. that if someone's if if tim noakes was saying Look at the establishment. They know nothing. I know everything. If he was coming at it in a polarizing way, then I would agree with you. And if Donald Trump no, I came agree. at it I agree. polarizing way, I would agree with you. I think that the duty is on us right now. The, it's, as much as like governments shouldn't be clamping down on people, on journalists writing stories that go against the government line, people need to not be clamping down. People need as far as possible to let go of their previous like esteem. So, so I think there's a distinction here. You hated there's, Donald there's a big Trump. Distinction here. Or you hated there's, Tim Noakes. You here. loved Tim Noakes. You kind of. It's up to us to kind of each person do the very damnedest they can. Yeah. To, there, there's to a big distinction here. Usual I think, which is which is the way you talk about it, right? So I'm not. I'm firstly I'm talking mostly that about this as being a fear of mine rather than they did something yeah. wrong. Because yeah. um, I've just got to say, it, with, in, in Tim Noakes' favor, Tim Noakes, the way he telegraphed it i thought it was really sober and it wasn't yeah, i think uh, i think that's a very good thing I, I think i think tim noakes did the right thing in this circumstance but trump didn't because he went sort of he made a very bold claim um yeah. now i understand no, i understand he's, he's yeah yeah i understand he's trying to give people hope and that kind of thing and at least he didn't say uh, that the damn democrats in the medical establishment are trying to kill you all which would have been yes. terrible um yes. and uh so, so, so I do agree with you on that point that it is important that we we try and take our normal idiocy <laughs> and we suck yeah. it out of these discussions because they're too important. Yeah, this is too important to be left right. This is too important, and it's way too important to fall into this very silly trap that I think, unfortunately, because a lot of people's scientific discussions in the last couple of years, especially in the media, will have been about climate science. And in climate science, there's this very kind of experts versus mavericks kind of thing. Right now, COVID is new enough that there is not a real expert that you, I haven't, I'm yet to find a real expert who can say definitively that something like hydrochloric doesn't work. 
I'm yet to find an expert who can say definitively that this doesn't attack the blood. The real experts are the ones saying, dude, science is about admitting how little you know and how many questions you have to ask. That, and, that's and exactly that's correct. expertise we need to follow. You know, it takes years to become an expert. We've only had months. <laughs> if you were studying yeah. this from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not uh, a time to be bashing anyone on the head. People are trying their damnedest. And but I just think on top of that, it's not a it's really not a great time for for the experts, for the for doctors to lock up too much. I think they need to try yes. and keep themselves open to conversation and open to uh, revealing data as it comes along. And I understand that usually a doctor's worst nightmare is that he gets exposed in the media for allowing patients to die because he wasn't applying the best form of medicine, even though he was following protocol. And that's why doctors usually have these conversations about whether when a patient dies, they have a meeting with the board and it's very no cameras allowed and there you hash it out and they can get very intense and very angry because the stakes are so high. And they'd like to keep it private though because when they come out back in front of the patients, it's a unified front. Unless there's literally legal negligence or recklessness, they come out with a unified front and they say we did the best we could do because they want everyone to believe in them. And I, I do want to say that there's this very important reason which is kind of weird to believe in doctors we have talked a lot about the esteem economy on this podcast so i'm going to assume that you know what i mean when i'm taught when i say that the esteem economy has been scientifically proven to be one of the world's most potent medicines you know it as the placebo effect literally the more you trust your doctor the more likely the medicines are to work on you even if it's just sugar water So it's very useful for us to trust our doctors a lot. And I think that's a big part of the background conditions for why there's this unified front thing, for why people are so ready to be like there's an expert consensus and they all know. But anyone who's dealt with like Alzheimer's, diabetes, of some some forms of diabetes, uh, uh, most forms of cancers, although definitely not all of them, will know the experience of conflicting opinions, of getting a second opinion, of being like, the experts yeah. disagree about this and they're willing to disagree about it in public. This is a time to be seeking second opinions. And this is a time to be giving second yeah, opinions we- so that people can make, so that people can own their choices, right? The, the esteem economy, like one of the basic tenets is that if human beings are not trapped by this kind of red, blue, or any kind of esteem game that makes us idiots, the more of us are thinking, the better. Yeah, exactly. We we trust our free society to deliver the best results in almost every single circumstance, right? When it's about the economy, whether it's about sort of science or public policy or that kind of thing, the reason we allow free speech is so that things can be hashed out, ideas can be exposed, and we can have a, a, a sort of flood of things. And we should rely upon that in this too. Uh, I think that the arguments for a free society don't completely, you know, they don't just dissolve and say, oh, no, actually, we must have centralized control of information, um, which is not what anyone, not what many people are calling for, but what a lot of people are in effect calling for uh, yeah. on these issues. You're uh, just driving yeah. around and saying you can't do this, you can't do that. Now, here's a very, here's going to be the hardest one. And, and this is one I want to push for. And I know we're running out of time because we've hit an hour. But if you want to think of this like a wartime scenario, I can't think of a single war where the governments wanted to publish the casualty statistics. Governments do not want to tell you how many of their soldiers have died because they think it'll be bad for morale for the soldiers. They think it'll be bad for morale back home. They don't want to do it. But every free society has pushed for those data to be released. We need to know how many soldiers have died. Now, I have looked at death rates, excess death rates in New York, excess death rates in the UK, which we only know by week leading up to the 13th week of the year, ending March 27. The excess deaths are, in other words, what are the average deaths you have on that day or that week or that month and what are the over the last five years and what are the amount of deaths that we have recorded in this year in that same period? Now, those excess deaths are huge and they are bigger than the number of COVID-related deaths. And I'm not talking like COVID, like COVID has killed you. I'm saying even including deaths where people had terminal cancer, they were like three weeks away from dying. They, they, they They're on their last and legs, yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of people dying. In fact, in the UK for week 13, there are a thousand extra deaths. Usually there are 11,000 for that period per week. So usually there are 10,000. This time there were 11,000. There are a thousand extra deaths. Only 500 
COVID-related deaths were recorded, and 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 yeah, doctors say the actual number of COVID deaths were much lower than that. So it's like half of the deaths we don't know where they're coming from. One of the big open questions are: Is our hospitals being overwhelmed to the point where triage is happening? People can't get the medicine that they need. If that is happening, that has been said to happen in Italy. That has been said to happen in Spain. There were threats of that happening in New York. I've seen no data. I still try and look for data for that kind of casualty. I see no data on that kind of casualty. So I don't know if that's what's happening. I also don't see data on like stress-related deaths, suicides, heart attacks, um, the kinds of things that you might think jump up because of the social and political dislocations that we've suffered. So I don't know if it's that. Also, there are, Nicholas was saying, very good point, people uh, may be dying of COVID at home because the median age for dying of COVID is like 78 or 80. A lot of people don't have time to get to the hospital. They don't have the resources. They're just at home alone and they pass away. And they're also are scared they by the lockdown, right? So you don't want to go yeah. to a hospital unless you really have to. So they, they sit at home. They think, okay, well, I'll just write this out. And from what I understand, sometimes what happens with COVID patients is that they can deteriorate very quickly. They can be in a relatively good condition and then suddenly they're condition collapses. Um, and in that case, an old person who's sort of sitting at home afraid, doesn't want to go out because they're scared that, you know, maybe I don't have COVID. And if I go out, I'm actually just going to get it in the hospital because they do spread yeah. through hospitals often. Um, they sit at home and then suddenly they die. And that could so, be a cause of, of these deaths. That's another potential cause. So there are serious questions. Where are these extra deaths coming from in New York and in the UK? What, what are the extra deaths in Italy and Spain, which are two of the other big hit countries that have the resources to know this and should yeah. be collating the data and should be dispensing it. And that is not going to happen unless pressure is applied for the same reason that governments do not release casualty stats on their armies until the pressure is applied. And once the pressure is properly applied, it kind of works across all wars. And the next time you don't even have to try, they just know that we've got to do this. But in every country I know of, like, first there has to be that pressure before they tell you who's dying, where are they dying, what kind of battles are they dying in. And they don't want to tell you because they think the generals know best and, you know, we need yeah. to manage how morale and all that kind of stuff. But this is not the time for that kind of esoteric expertise. This is the time for yeah. open book expertise. This is exactly. not more, a Microsoft situation. This is the findings. The more, the more information that's out there, the, the, the faster we'll be able to get a grip on this, on exactly what's happening, over who's getting hit, and we'll be able to work out perhaps the best things to do or maybe where the government is making mistakes in its response. Um, exactly. And this is actually a point, this is a point the DA has made about South Africa, right? They've said, uh, you know, we're not really seeing what the government's uh, basing the lockdown on. Uh, you yeah. know, we can see other countries, but we don't know what's going on in South Africa. And so we know that we don't know whether we're doing the right thing. Because and this is the thing, and it's the same for war. This is an economic question. This is a political question. This is a medical question. This is a sociological question. There are no, no one is an expert in all of those things. Yeah. So the medical experts, the the actuaries, the morgue operators, the politicians, the economists, everyone needs the most information they can from the other experts in order to make the best judgments they can about where, where the variables sort of function into their own particular equations. So, yeah, again, open book, open, open book. Agree, a hundred percent. All right, uh, I think we do have to call it to a close. There uh, is there any is there a fun item you perhaps want to mention? Uh, oh, I don't know. Tiger King. Had such a crescendo. Yeah, watch Tiger King if you haven't. Uh, we've probably just ruined it for you, uh, but it's it's still good fun. No, dude, we definitely haven't. It is. We have not said anything <laughs> that has reduced your viewing pleasure at all. It is. No, it yeah, will that, blow that, your mind if you haven't seen. It, it's always it more so, insane than someone can describe. <laughs> it's like Hamlet. Dude, this is like Hamlet. I'm not exaggerating. This is like a Dostoevsky novel. This is like Crime and Punishment. I can tell you the plot of Crime and Punishment in a minute, but it is nothing compared to what it is like to read that book because of the depths of the human soul that it takes you to and then flip and find the trapdoor to go even deeper at the same time as never somehow losing sight of the stars and the flowers and the and the kitty cats. You know, it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, well said. Um, so I think also, uh, uh, you know, there's some good fun videos out there. I saw an interesting one now of how uh, some elephants are now wandering back into towns in India um, because all the people are indoors at the moment, which is uh, quite cool. 
Um, and also another thing, I've noticed that a lot of people have started saying stay safe instead of goodbye. And it's been this sort of weird overnight cultural change that's happened because of the pandemic, uh, which is we, quite fascinating. Yeah. And I think it's quite nice. Yeah, I like it. It's, it's at, like a very nice at college. At college, we used to, when I was in America, guys from the South, there's one, one tick I picked up from them is often instead of saying thank you, I would say I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Because that's, that's how they often do it. And they often said, uh, I didn't like it when they say take it easy. I mean, I think sometimes it's the right way to say goodbye, but sometimes it's like, I'm in a rush now, dude. Don't tell me to take it easy. Like, I've got places to go. <laughs> uh, and it's like a very American South, like, you know, you bought your sandwich yeah, and you're yeah. rushing out the door. It's like, hey, take it easy. But stay safe was was one of their big ones. And I, I'm very glad it's making a comeback. And, it, and it's so really, I mean, it's, so, so goodbye comes from uh, saying God be with you, right? Which is essentially, yeah. essentially the same sentiment, right? It's saying uh, the God protect you as you go on your journeys. And so I think stay safe is actually really just us, you know, who've forgotten that meaning or just. Yeah. Get back. You know, sort of in a more secular way. Exactly. So anyway, oh, uh, stay safe out. Stay safe out there, everyone, and we will catch you on next week's edition of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. <laughs>